0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Catalyst. My name is JR. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, if if you know me very well at all, then you probably know that I am sort of minorly obsessed with karaoke. I love karaoke. I love going to karaoke. I love singing karaoke. I'm not good at karaoke, but I'm fun at karaoke. And I mean, that's the most important thing, right? Uh, So I've been... uh, I don't, like, do it all the time. I guess maybe I do it a lot. Anyway, whatever. Uh, I've been doing it long enough that I have learned a lot of songs. There are a lot of songs that people love to sing at karaoke that I never learned just by listening to the radio or whatever growing up. And one of those songs is Garth Brooks's uh, karaoke smash hit, I've Got Friends in Low Places, right? You know this song, right? So I didn't really listen to country music growing up. No one in my family was a big Garth fan. I had a grandpa who was really into country music, but, like, nothing... Uh, newer than Johnny Cash, right, so uh, so real. I mean, I just, I mean, I had heard, everyone has heard that song, I think, at least once, uh, but I, I didn't know it until I went to karaoke because let me tell you something, people at karaoke bars love to sing Friends in Low Places, and I mean, of course they do, right, it's catchy, uh, it's, it's a tremendously fun song to sing and to sing along to, so it, it's a perfect, it's a perfect karaoke anthem, uh, but one of the fun things about karaoke, karaoke is you kind of get to see it and pay attention to the words, right? And and if you probably know this about the song, but in case you've always just sort of sung along and never thought about it, Friends in Low Places is a song about a guy who apparently has never been like a particularly classy guy. He's always been kind of like a redneck, right? And now in the song, he is crashing his ex-wife's wedding, of course, which he calls a black tie affair, right? And he's he's, he's, he's stumbled in, sort of blind drunk, and is making a big scene, at the wedding. That's, what, that's really what he's singing about, right? Uh, and so he assures everyone that he's going to be fine, right? Because he's got friends in low places. And the song sort of ends with him slinking off to his favorite watering hole to drown his sorrows in whiskey and beer chasers, right? That's, that's, that is what the song's about. So uh, I think there's a few reasons that, that the, we like the song, in addition to the fact that, again, it's just insanely catchy and fun to sing along to. But we also have We've also all been in places like that. Maybe not, you know, drunkenly crashing an ex's wedding, hopefully, right? But we've all been in what we would consider, like, rock-bottom kinds of places. And, and misery loves company, right? That's why the song is so fun to sing. That's why it's so fun to sing along to. And we all know that when you've been in a particularly rotten place that just feels... Uh, feels painful, a place where you feel lost, uh, there are few things more valuable than those irreplaceable friends who will be down in that hole with you. The friends who will climb down into rock bottom with you and be at rock bottom with you because they're your friends. That is an irreplaceable gift. And again, I think we all know that and that's why we, that's why we enjoy that song because it brings us all together, everyone kind of sings along and it, it's fun. Uh, As we think about faith, though, one of the things that I have been challenged by over the years is that there are very few of us who would imagine that when we're in those rock-bottom places, that God is one of those friends who would climb down and be at rock-bottom with us. I think a lot of us, uh, particularly if we're at a rock-bottom of our own making, uh, tend to imagine that God is more sort of smugly sitting on high, looking down at us in our rock-bottom places and judging us, maybe thinking, well, that's what you get. Or if you would only listen to me, maybe things would be better. It's difficult for us to imagine that God would be at rock bottom with us. But what if we're wrong? What if we have God all wrong? What if God is, in fact, the very kind of God who would be in those rock bottom places with us? That's what we're going to talk about today. Today we're actually going to talk about what it means that God is everywhere Always with us, uh, even and maybe especially in those rock bottom places, and that our job, the first movement of faith, is not to seek God or to work hard to reach God or something like that, but simply to wake up to the reality that God is always with us, always around us, always inviting us to see and experience the one who is right there next to us so we're going to begin this morning by singing about this god by singing about this god's faithfulness by celebrating this god's love for us would you stand with me as we begin worshiping this morning this summer, we've called our series The Way, Way Back, and hopefully that conjures to mind for you. Road trips, uh, the, sort of for me, that's the ultimate summer experience is piling into a station wagon and particularly as kids fighting over who got to sit in the way, way back and uh, try not to get car sick, right? And then just uh, set out for the open road. So uh, we have been asking what do we learn about God? When we're, when we're on the road and uh, what, are, what, are the, what are the experiences of God that we have when we leave our, our comfort zones, the places that, that we think of as home or that feel like home to us. And our guides in this journey have been the patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their wives, their children, uh, because they were nomads, they lived on the road. And as we follow their stories through, uh, through Genesis, we find them having all of these encounters of God that are, uh, frankly, a little bit outside of the norm, I think, for most of us. So we spent several weeks following Abraham. And then last week, we transitioned to, uh, Joseph, uh, to Jacob, who is, who is Abraham's grandson. So we kind of we spent a week on Isaac and Rebekah uh, learning about how they met and fell in love. And then uh, last week, we met their sons, their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And we saw that Jacob essentially stole his brother's birthright. He stole his position as the firstborn son and all of the rights and privileges that went along with that. With his mother's help, Rebecca, his, his mother sort of masterminded the whole thing. And uh, last week's story ended with Jacob on the run. His brother was understandably furious and threatened to kill his brother Jacob if he ever saw him again. So, so Jacob is now on the run, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 28 today, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn over there or flip over there. Uh, If you grab one of the free Bibles out of the back, this is on page 18. You're welcome to follow along there, or again, if you're clicking over there on your uh, smart devices, that's great as well. So in Genesis 28, we're going to meet Jacob while he is on the run. He has nothing to his name. He has the clothes on his back. He has no property. He has no wealth. Uh, He's literally just gotten out of Dodge and is trying to survive in the open alone, which is incredibly dangerous. Uh, People in this day and age didn't travel alone for a whole host of reasons. Uh, But Jacob is trying to make it to his uncle, Uh, Laban's, which he'll get there, spoiler alert, next week. Uh, So we'll we'll be with Laban next week. But for now, he's just out in the middle of nowhere on his own trying to survive. And you'll see that he's essentially at a literal rock bottom in uh, this moment that we're, and and in this uh, story that we're going to read together today. And in this story, Jacob has a surprising dream. So let's read together. We're going to begin in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 28. Genesis tells us, meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. That's where his uncle lives. That's where Abraham came from, right? So he's kind of going back to see the in-laws. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp, and he stopped there for the night. Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down there. That's why it says like a literal rock bottom, right? He has nothing. He doesn't even have a pillow, so he just like finds a, I don't know what a good rock counts as if you're going to use it as a pillow, but he found, I guess, a serviceable rock. He uses it, a pillow, and he goes to sleep. As he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached up from the earth to heaven, and he saw the angels of God going up and down on the stairway, and at the top of the stairway stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord your God, of your fa- uh, the God of your grandfather Abraham, the God of your father Isaac. The ground that you are laying on belongs to you, I am giving it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. They will spread out in all directions, to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your descendants. If that sounds at all familiar, that is the same covenant that God made with Abram back when he called Abram the very first week of the series to to leave everything. He said, I'm going to make your descendants, I think he said they're as numerous as the stars of the sky. But, you know, a lot of stars, a lot of dirt, so it's the same basic idea. He said, one day, or what's more, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go and one day I will bring you back to this land, this land that Jacob is on his way out of, right? this land he's running away from. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I wasn't even aware of it. But he was also afraid and he said, what an awesome place this is it is none other than the house of God, the very gateway to heaven. So the next morning, Jacob got up very early, and he took the stone that he had rested his head against, and he set it upright as a memorial pillar. And then he poured olive oil over it, and he named that place Bethel, which means the house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Okay, so Jacob has this amazing dream where God reaffirms this covenant to him. And he wakes up, and he says, surely God was in this place, and I, I didn't know it. I didn't know God was here. Now, a couple of things about the dream that if we had been ancient readers, we would have spotted, but again, because this were very many centuries and language groups and religions removed, we, we kind of miss it. So the word ladder in Hebrew is probably better translated ramp, but like that's a weirder image, right? Ladder's kind of fun, so. Plus, I don't know what you do at the Jacob's Ladder thing at the fair if you called it Jacob's Ramp, but it's really more of a ramp uh, and again, uh, in the ancient world, you would have recognized this because Babylonian temples were built with ramps that ran up the side of them and they had like a flat place on top. And so in, in Babylonian worship experiences, the priests would walk up the ramps and the idea was when you got to the top of the ramp, that's where the gods were, right? So any ancient person reading this in here, you know there's a ramp that goes up to heaven and there's angels coming up and down it. They would have immediately, they would be like, oh yeah, yeah, this, that's, why, that's why Jacob said this is a gateway to heaven, right? This is how you get to heaven. And these angels coming up and down the ladder or the ramp, they're, they're essentially like divine, they're the divine functionaries. They're, they're taking missions to and from the heavenly throne room, right? Kind of like a king would send out messengers to get his work done, right? That's, that's the same idea. God is sending out these messenger angels. And so they're coming down the ramp and going out into the world and doing God's work. And then when they get done, they come back and, you know, go back up the ramp to give their report. And so again, of course, it's not a surprise that at the top of the ramp, we see Yahweh the Lord God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, and now, the God of Jacob. Right? That's, uh, th- that's, that's all, again, if you were an ancient person, relatively expected. We read this, we're like, wow, but that's because we don't have this kind of framework, right? So Jacob is just out in the middle of nowhere, and he has this dream where apparently he is at the very gateway to heaven. And he wakes up amazed. I mean, imagine if the singer in Friends in Low Places had slinked off and just found like some random bar on the side of the road to drown his sorrows in, right? And then there's these, he gets in there and there are these two escalators running up to heaven. You're like, whoa, that was unexpected. That's amazing, right? Amazing, or is it? Because there was another practice in the ancient world called incubation. The idea in incubation is that if you're a worshiper, you go to the sacred site of your God, wherever your God's temple is or whatever, and you sleep there. And you hope that while you're asleep, Whatever God you're trying to worship is going to send you a revelation. Right? It was called incubation. It was, again, it's something that if we were ancient people, it would have been like, yeah, 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 done that before. Right? You go to sleep at a sacred site, you hope for a revelation. And here's where it gets really interesting. We probably all missed it because uh, the English downplays it so much. But right at the beginning of the, of the passage, it said that Jacob came to a good place to camp for the night. Well, the Hebrew word that is used there, good place, it's a word makom. M-A-K-O-M, Macomb. And it's a word that elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible is used to refer to sacred sites and temples. So it's not a good place, it's a sacred place. Jacob found a sacred place, a Macomb, and he set up camp there. And then he slept there, and he received a revelation. Yeah, that's what happens when you sleep at sacred sites. That's incubation. Right? Again, ancient people would have been like, yeah, 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 get to the good part. But of course, Jacob didn't realize it was a sacred spot. He's on the run for his life. He has nothing to his name, except apparently some olive oil that he poured on the rock at the end, right? And he just passes out at the first decent place he can find a camp, and it turns out to be a macomb, a sacred space. As he says, the very gateway to heaven. That is amazing. Is Jacob just a really lucky guy? Well, Rabbi Rashi did not think so. He said that when Jacob said, surely God was in this place and I did not know, what he meant was, if I had known that this was the gateway to heaven, I wouldn't have fallen asleep. Right? I wouldn't have just like passed out and woke up the next day. If I had known that this was the very gateway to heaven, I would have stayed awake. I would have paid attention. I would have looked for God in this place because it's a Macomb. It's a sacred site. It's the very gateway to ha- If I had known, I wouldn't have fallen asleep. That's what Rabbi Rashi says Jacob meant. But of course, that's the fun part of the story is that it was just a wilderness spot. There wasn't anything special or noteworthy about it. And yet it was still a sacred place. It was still a Macomb. Rashi says... This story teaches us that every place is a sacred place. That the gateway to heaven can be found anywhere. And that maybe the problem is not so much that God is difficult to find, but that we like to sleep. Maybe the first movement of faith is to wake up to wake up and find the God who is with us, who is in this place, to realize that wherever we are, that place is a Macomb. It is sacred. Not because we're there, because God is there. Could you imagine that? That God is in every place. Even in the rock bottom places. Even when, like Jacob, you have burned so many bridges that there aren't any left to cross, God is in that space. It is a Macomb. Even when you're in a rock-bottom place because of what someone else has done to you, even there, God is with you. Even that place is a Macomb. Or maybe where you are isn't really anyone's fault, but it's still bad. It's still hurtful. You still are wondering if there's any hope. Even in that place, God is present. Even that is a Macomb. And God is inviting us to wake up and say, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. Again, if you have one of the Bibles in the back, that's page 638. Uh, one of I, John is my favorite gospel, as you can tell, because I preach out of it a lot. And one of the reasons I love it so much is because of how much fun John has playing with all of the stories of the Old Testament. It seems like uh, almost every time I read something in the Old Testament, I'm like, oh, John referenced that. That's so fun. That's so cool. And this story of Jacob and this dream of this ladder ramp with the angels is no different So this is a story in John chapter 1 where uh, it's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and Jesus is about to get his first disciples. Now, uh, his cousin John the Baptist has been preaching and teaching, and John has a bunch of disciples. And so John has just said, hey, look, that's the guy I've been talking about. If you really want to be where God is, you need to be with him. And so a couple of John's disciples, uh, Andrew and Philip, go and follow Jesus. And they are so blown away by this Jesus guy that John talked about, that they go and get a couple of their friends. Andrew gets his brother Peter, and Philip goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel's a skeptic, right? So I want to read for you what happens when Nathaniel encounters Jesus, and I'm just telling you ahead of time, uh, Jesus is referencing this dream. Now, there's one other thing you need to know, because we haven't gotten to it in our series yet, but if you might remember that Jacob's name means trickster or deceiver. Right? And again, if you were here last week, think about all of the, the sort of da- underhanded ways that he arranged to get his birthright. Right? Like he's, he's a tricky guy. And the name Jacob means trickster or deceiver. Now, again, spoilers for a couple of weeks from now. His name is eventually changed to Israel from Jacob. And Israel is the name of God's people, right? The nation of Israel. Uh, and, and Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 heads of the tribes that the, the people of Israel descend from. So Jacob is eventually renamed Israel. Okay, so keep that in mind as we read. Uh, This is, I can't wait, let's just get, I'm so excited about this. Okay, it's so cool. So Philip, remember, he's the one that is trying to recruit, right? He went looking for Nathaniel and told him, we found the guy, right? The very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. The skeptic says Nazareth can anything good come from Nazareth? That's like Oklahoma. I was like, oh, Oklahoma, what? Sorry, what? Like, give me a break. I'm kidding. Sorry, people from Oklahoma. We love you. We're glad you're here. Um, but you know, like you know, right? Uh, I'm just saying that's what a Texan would say. That's, that's all I meant. Uh, and so Philip just, he doesn't try, I love Philip doesn't try to argue. He's just like, well, come and see. Come check it out. As they approach Jesus said, he looks at at Nathanael and he says, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. What he actually says in the Greek is, now here is a true son of Israel in whom there is no deception. Here is a true Israel in whom there is no Jacob. Right? He's playing on the Jacob Israel name change. And he looks at Nathanael and he says, this is a true Israel in whom there is no Jacob. And then he gets to the dream. Nathaniel's like, how do you know about me? And Jesus replies, well, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. I have no idea what was going on under that uh, that fig tree, but apparently it was enough for Nathanael, right? Because he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. And Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And I, I think this is my fault, I left off. If you, if you keep reading, if you're following along in the, in the scriptures, you can read. It says, Jesus says, you will see the skies open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the bit where Jesus calls to mind Jacob's dream. And again, he's prepped us for that because he called Nathaniel the true Israel and who there is no Jacob, right? So he makes sure that we're thinking of the Jacob story. And then he says, you're going to see the skies open up and you're gonna see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is Jesus himself, right? So Jesus warns his disciples that he is about to become the ladder or the ramp to heaven, that he is about to become the bridge between heaven and earth, that he is the one through whom the work of God on earth will be accomplished. Now, we, having the luxury of 2,000 years of hindsight, know that he is talking about the cross, all through John's gospel, you might, some of you who were here during uh, our Easter season might remember this. We were in John a lot, and Jesus was constantly talking about the hour that was coming when he would be raised up, or the hour of his glory, and all this kind of stuff. Right? When Jesus is lifted up in John's gospel, that is the cross. And so when he says the skies will open and the angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man, that is the cross. Jesus is pointing to that moment when the work of God on earth is accomplished. And for Jesus, that was a quintessential rock-bottom moment. Mark gives us the cry that Jesus made when he was hanging on the cross. He said, then at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus experiences the desolation of rock bottom, a feeling like he doesn't have any friends in this low place, that even God has abandoned him, which begs the question, if Jesus is God, can God abandon God's self? And the correct theological answer is no, no. Right? Uh, Since we started talking about the Trinity, one of the things that we insisted about the Trinity, God being Father, Spirit, and Son, is that they are indivisible, that what one does, all do, that God cannot, in fact, turn God's back on God's self. And yet we have this cry of dereliction My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean? Well, it means that in this moment, God is breaking the rules of what is possible and what is impossible. So, that in this moment when Jesus experiences what it is like to be God forsaken, that means that even God is with the God forsaken. If you're in a place that's so low that you think God must have abandoned you, God's there too. Through the cross, through the work that God accomplished on the cross by entering into that space of God-forsakenness. God broke the rules of possibility so that God could be with even the God-forsaken. That means there is no place we can go that is outside of the reach of God's love. There is no place that we can find that is not a muck Even the God-forsaken places are sacred because God is in them too. And I know that doesn't make sense. That's the point. It's a mystery. It is a mystery at the heart of God that we are invited into. For me, the first rock-bottom place, I've shared, I've shared this story before, some of you have heard it, but the, the first rock-bottom place I ever experienced was when I found out my parents were getting divorced. I was about 13. And I remember I was walking along the side of this little highway in our little town in Missouri. Uh, I was heading either to or from church or whatever, but I was a good distance away from, you know, the sacred place, the church and still a good place away from home, which had become a pretty painful, scary place. And I remember just feeling this whole mix of emotions and not knowing what to do with them and just crying out to God for help. And I had this like pretty mystical experience on the side of the highway where God came to me and, and gave me peace. And it's, it's very hard to describe. It's very hard to put into words, I think in some ways, because it was sort of an experience beyond words. But much like Jacob waking up from his dream the next morning, nothing changed in my life. There were, there were no external realities that were different. I didn't like pray a good enough prayer that God zapped my parents or, or something like that. Like Nothing changed except that I had woken up to the reality that if God was with me on the side of a highway somewhere between the church and my house, then God was with me everywhere. And that, that experience has carried me through a lot more rock bottoms that I've had in my life. And uh, I'm pretty confident I haven't had the end of rock bottoms in my life because I'm you know, still relatively young. And so uh, I, I am confident that it will continue to carry me beyond there, too. But just this last week, uh, I've been meeting with the spiritual director for the better part of this year, and uh, um, I, I met with her this week, and she was, whenever, whenever we meet, she always starts by saying, tell me about your prayer life, uh, which I don't like to talk about, because I'm not as, as, as consistent and faithful a prayer as I think a pastor should be, and so I'm always kind of like, Ooh. and this, uh, this month, I, I took a week to be with my family, and uh, like my, my brother and sister, nieces and nephews, and parents, and all that, and uh, one of the ways i found that I get, I get better at praying is that I've, I've started a morning routine where when the first thing I do when I get up is I, I have this little quiet corner of our home where I just sit in a chair and I have some prayer exercises that I do. And it's, it's quiet and I can be alone and focus on the prayer. And it's, it's, it's really helped me become a more consistent prayer. But uh, being at my parents' houses uh, with nieces and nephews who I think sleep roughly two hours a night as far as I can tell, uh, there were no quiet corners, because uh, they love their Uncle JR, and as soon as I get up, like, they can hear, even if they're, like, three houses away, when I open the door to my bedroom, and then they're like, Uncle JR, it's time to play, right? So, so I just told her, I, sa- I said, you know, I didn't pray much this month, because, like, I had this whole week where, like, I was just, um, you know, I was with my nieces and nephews, and uh, she kind of looked at me funny, and she was like, well, why is, why, is that, why is that time that you have the only time you pray? And it's like, okay, so as a pastor, you know a lot of the right spiritual answers, and then so like I knew what I was supposed to say, but the reality was I hadn't, you know, she, she and the the language that she used I found so helpful. She said, those moments with your nieces and nephews, those are a grace that God has given you. God is present in those moments, which I obviously, right, but I wasn't awake to it. I was sleeping, through that. I was enjoying my time with them, but I was asleep to the fact that God was present with me in those moments too. And, and, and so she challenged me. She said, it's great that you have this little prayer corner and this little morning routine. Like, that is really good. I don't want to take away from that. But like, if that's the only time you're praying, you're missing this God who is with you everywhere, always. Because every place is a Macomb. Every place is sacred. So that's the question I want to ask you as we are moving into this time of reflection and response, is how how do things change for you if every place is sacred? How do things change for you if, if God is with you everywhere? What are the parts of your life where you need to wake up because you've been sleeping through them? and you've been missing what God is wanting to do and how God is wanting to speak to you. I know some of us in here are in a time that we would consider a rock-bottom kind of a time. I know a lot of us aren't, though. But that doesn't mean we're not asleep. And so we're going to come to the communion table this morning because it's in the communion meal that we are reaffirmed that every place is sacred. That God is with us everywhere, because this table is how we celebrate and affirm Jesus' death and resurrection. That time when he died for us and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we participate in the communion meal, we are reminded that God is with us, that every part of our lives is full of grace. So you don't have to be a member of catalyst to receive communion with us today if you are willing to wake up if you are willing to be reminded that god is with you everywhere and always then you're welcome to come to the table so here's what we're going to do we uh i had i don't know like 20 of you can come over this week and we painted these little rocks and some of them look like someone sneezed while they were painting them those are mine Uh, Many of them are much better than that. (laughs) Those are not mine. Uh, But they all say makom on them in Hebrew. So you just have to take my word for it if you don't read Hebrew. Uh, uh, Makom. They're a reminder that every place is sacred. And so I want to invite you to the communion table this morning to receive these wafers and this juice to participate in God's death and resurrection. And then I want to invite you to take one of these rocks with you uh, and then, and uh, and spend some time after you've received communion praying with the rock, asking God to remind you of where you need to wake up. And then I have an assignment for us before we leave this morning that involves these little guys. So uh, I want to pray for us before we receive communion together. And then, as you're ready, you're welcome to come forward, receive the elements, and then grab one of the rocks, and uh, and head back to your seat in an attitude of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we are in a place that is so easy to consider a sacred place. We're a church. And in the songs we've sung, in the scriptures that we've read, in the time that we've had together uh, to reflect on your good news, it's easy, it's easy to believe that you are with us. But we have heard this morning uh, the better news that every place is a sacred place. That every place is a Macomb and that you desire to be with us and for us to be attentive to your presence in our lives, not just in this place, but in every place. So we come to your table this morning as a people uh, needing to wake up from our sleep, a people desiring to see you at work everywhere in all parts of our lives. We come to receive these wafers and juice, and we ask that they become a spiritual food, that they give us the grace to wake up to how you are at work everywhere, not just here. We ask that you send us from your table as a people awakened from slumber, ready to engage you in all parts of our lives and ready to point out how we see you at work in the lives of others, that we too might be a means by which you wake up others that you have called us to serve. We offer these prayers this morning and we approach your table following in the footsteps of our ancestor Jacob and in the name of your son Jesus. And we're glad you're here with us. Uh, Now, I told you I was going to give you a little assignment. Uh, When Jacob woke up from his dream, when he said, surely God was in this place and I did not know, uh, he took that rock that he had been using as his pillow, that rock bottom rock, and he set it up as an altar to mark that the spot was Macomb, that it was a holy place, that God had met with him there. And so uh, we gave you these little rocks, and they say Macomb on them as a reminder that every place is holy. And so my challenge for you this week is to take this with you and to put it somewhere that you need to be reminded to be awake to what God is doing. Again, that's that's not here like we come to church expecting to encounter God, uh, which is good, we should, right? Um, but we need to be reminded to wake up when we're out in the rest of the world. So maybe that's somewhere in your home, maybe that's somewhere at work, maybe you need to give it to someone to remember that they too are created in the image of God. Uh, We do have a few rocks left up here, and so uh, as sort of a corollary, if there is someone that you know um, that needed to hear what we talked about today, feel free to take a rock to give to them and share with them what God has spoken to you today uh, as a gift to them and as a a ministry to them, as a grace to them. Uh, Because God is with us in every place, and we want to be a church that's awake to what God is doing, not only when the Spirit has gathered us to worship, but when the Spirit sends us out into the world to fill the world with God's love and God's light. So as you go this week, Catalyst, may you be awake the God who is with you. May you be constantly surprised by how good and how loving and how powerful this God is. May you be a light to everyone you meet. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see you next week.